Well, good morning. Please turn with me one final time in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where we will cover verse 16. We left off last time through the end of the first letter here. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul concludes his first letter to this fledgling church in these verses. Conclusions are often, final final greetings conclusions are often considered kind of canned. They are things that everyone blows past in their reading. But, but certainly, thoughtful analysis of the end of Paul's letters reveals that that is decidedly not the case. That they are tailored for that particular letter and those particular churches. And while they are certain common elements that we would do well to listen to each one on its own terms. Uh, It may not be immediately obvious here, but almost all the commentators agree on something that I want to lay out before we even get into the passage, and that is that in this concluding section, what appears to be the case is there is a particular emphasis on corporate worship, uh, that is to say corporate gathering together, as opposed to admonition simply to individual Christians. Obviously, individual Christians make up the corporate gathering. Yes, understood. But it seems that there's particular emphasis here on the corporate nature of these commands. First, there are four reasons to believe that. Number one, the plurals from the last second continue. So it's in Greek, rejoice always, you all, or all of you. Okay, Pray continually, all of you. The plurals continue, number one. Uh, Number two, the context of evaluating prophecy is unmistakably language of being gathered together corporately. Number three, greeting one another with a holy kiss describes the kind of greeting that they are to greet one another with when they are together. You can't greet someone with a holy kiss on the other side of the city. Clearly there is a coming together language here. And then finally, the command to have the letter read before the brothers implies that everyone is gathered together as well. So there's a couple things that tip us off, leading most commentators to agree that the exhortations here, at least in the first half especially, that we're going to look at, are particularly directed towards what I'm calling corporate conduct. Corporate conduct. And we, again, we have this a couple of staccato-like exhortations. Let's just go through them quickly. The first, he says, rejoice always. By the way, if you're, if you're someone who says, I just can never do Bible memory verses. 
like these are your three verses right here. Like this is it. Okay? This is it. Along with Jesus wept. Okay? You can do this. Rejoice always. He says, joy is what characterizes Paul's ministry despite the trials. It should characterize our lives and our worship together. It's one of the it's interesting that it's one of the distinguishing aspects of Christianity in sharp contrast with pagan literature at their time. There is so little emphasis on joy, a lot on pleasure, but not so much on joy and certainly not on hope. The comparative levels of joy and hope in Christian literature um, absolutely dwarf other usages. In fact, uh, one, one first century scholar says that most of the uses of the word translated joy in all of the ancient literature come up in Christian documents. And it's only rare to find the word translated joy here in pagan documents. Now, lest we be misled, we should understand this as something like joy in the Lord or the joy of the Lord. We don't want to be misunderstood to say that what we should all be when we gather together or in our own uh, individual lives is we should be giddy all the time. We should have perpetual happiness. We should be you know, ready to sing and skip down the road every day. That's not it. It is a deep-seated joy. It's a kind of joy um, that Christ could have to endure the cross. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Okay, so clearly we're not talking about skipping and singing hymns and daisies. We're talking about a deep-seated joy that is anchored to promises and hope and fulfillment and has an existential meat to it that gives us satisfaction. It's an anchor for our soul. We are to be a rejoicing people, number one, that's what he says. Second, he says that we should be a prayerful people. Pray without ceasing. God's people are be a praying people when we gather and when we are scattered. That's why we try to pray in our services. In fact, I heard one pastor the other day said, try to pray so much in your services that nominal Christians get bored. I was like, ooh. I like that. We try to have a prayer. After our Old Testament reading and New Testament reading, we're trying to understand what a, what a pastoral prayer would look like with Pastor Ben, we're trying to implement that somewhere into 2023. We have a corporate prayer. Uh, we want to be a, prayer, a prayerful people, a people of prayer which is powerful and effective, according to James. And Paul says, be about this. And then finally he says, Thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances. I want to be very clear that it says give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. I had a very dear friend who misunderstood this, was praying with his wife who had cancer, and he prayed out loud that he was thankful that she, got, she had gotten cancer. Uh, and and uh, he, he had a, his heart was in the right place, uh, but he wasn't thinking about quite right. The idea isn't be thankful for brokenness and be thankful for all these evil things. But in the midst of these things, there is thankfulness to be had because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done and because of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. That's the idea. So no matter what happens, we can still be thankful. And as it turns out, thankful people tend to be joyful people. The most joyful people you know are probably the most thankful people that you know. Okay, there is a direct connection. There is a direct connection there. And so we should be thanking the Lord corporately when we gather together. And by the way, that's why we read Psalm 95 as the first reading. That's why we read Psalm 95. Uh, that these elements should characterize Christian gatherings and interaction is the will of God for you all. For you all. 
This is not a good template for church service planning. It isn't kind of an uplifting self-help idea. This is how God would have his people conduct themselves when they are together. And we hope to be a church who tries to do those things. And we certainly do not do them perfectly. And there's likely much opportunity for improvement. But that's what we are aiming for when we gather together formally and informally. And now Paul pulls a nasty little trick on the preacher trying to be thoughtful. And in the span of four short verses, not only introduces an entirely new concept into the book, uh, as he prepares to close, but he introduces one that has occasioned thousands of pages of great theological debate and stands as one of the thorniest theological issues on the pages of the New Testament, and that is prophecy, the nature of prophecy. In verse 19, he says, do not quench the Spirit. Now, when you hear the word quench, if you're like me initially, what usually do you quench? Your thirst, right? Okay, but that's not what it's saying. It's not saying that the Holy Spirit should be parched in your church. You know, no drinks for the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. This is the quench. Think of Matthew 12, that Jesus will not quench a smoldering wick. This is to put out a fire. This is the idea of putting out a fire, not giving water. To, to, of course, I guess you could put out a fire by administering water, but that's not the point either. The idea is to, to quench something that is burning, to stop something that is going. And what he says is, do not quench the Spirit. It is working dynamically in the church. Don't stop the activity, the burning of the Spirit. And he doesn't just say, don't do it generically. He clarifies how. He clarifies how to not quench the Spirit, and it's in the next verse. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Do not quench the Spirit. What does that look like? It looks like not despising prophecies. Verse 20, and brothers and sisters, there you have it. Which prophecies? From whom? What is prophecy? How or why would one despise prophecy? As the next verse will lead us to ask, how do we test prophecy? What's the authority of prophecy? Do people still prophesy in one way or another today? What's the level of authority of both of, of different kinds of prophecy and on and on and on? Furthermore, we could ask questions like, what occasions this exhortation to the church at Thessalonica? Were they people who were too easily believing just everyone who claimed to be a prophet? Were they a gullible church because they were a fledgling church? Is that it? They were just, they just easy believism? Or were they a church that was just dismissing it altogether because they had, had had some bad experiences? It simply isn't clear. The questions that could be asked of this section are overwhelming. And so, the task falls to me to say, what am I going to say about it here in a preaching slot? And I'm going to say four things. The first is that good, faithful, sharp, evangelical, reformed theologians and New Testament scholars disagree on the nature of prophecy. There are two primary groups. One group spearheaded by someone like Richard Gaffin, 
would say that New Testament prophecy was just the same as Old Testament prophecy. It was just as authoritative. It was inspired. And the New Testament prophets stood up. They were declaring the word of the Lord. Carry the same weight as Scripture. The other group says, no, no, no. New Testament prophecy is the result of a spiritual gift of prophecy, uh, whereby roughly someone does their best to reveal something that God has brought to their mind to build up the church. And like any gift, uh, it is not to be, uh, it is not, it's not something that is utilized perfectly and thus is subject to error. New Testament prophecy can in fact be in error and needs to be judged for truthfulness. So two competing understandings of what New Testament prophecy is, to be really, to cut it down, one that says it's infallible and authoritative, one says that it's meaningful, helpful, and edifying, but not necessarily infallible, and it doesn't carry the weight of Scripture. Point number one. Point number two, both camps agree that the New Testament prophecy is not generally foretelling. Because when you and I hear prophecy, oftentimes we think of predicting the future. But in fact, when you look back in the Old Testament, the vast majority of prophecy is not foretelling, it's forth-telling. It's bringing forth something to the people of Israel and the people of Judah, giving them a word of rebuke, giving them the hope of a promise, something like that. It is bringing something for them. It is not saying that something in the future is going to happen. Both people on both sides of the debate understand prophecy in the New Testament to generally, with uh, perhaps uh, one or two exceptions out of the book of Acts, to be forthtelling, bringing something forward for edification, for building up. Could even be thanksgiving, for example, and not predicting the future. That's the second point. Number three, both, both camps, both views believe in the supremacy and authority of God's word and that there is no longer any revelation that carries the authoritative weight of Scripture. Both camps believe that. How, do you, how is that the case, you ask? Well, the first camp that believes New Testament prophecy was in fact as authoritative as Scripture, because it was essentially just like Old Testament prophecy, um, they believe that that action, that gift, uh, no longer is around, earning themselves a label, the cessationists. Yes, New Testament prophecy was authoritative. It laid the foundation of the church along with the apostles, Ephesians 2.20, and... It is, and it was as weighty as it was the word of the Lord, and it is no more. The other side gets around it by saying, yes, prophecy is still around, but it's not infallible. It's an, it is uh, subservient to Scripture. It serves the Scripture. It cannot be in conflict with Scripture. Its authority is not on the same level. Scripture is supreme. Scripture is infallible. They get themselves, they earn themselves a label in light of that, the continuationists. In light of that, fourth, I, I think I can provide a definition of prophecy for you that both camps would agree with in light of a larger framework where God is sovereign and the Spirit works. If you believe that God is sovereign and the Spirit is active in the church, I think you can get, get behind this understanding of prophecy, even if, regardless of which of those interpretations you take. A thought... It could be a thanksgiving. It could be an exhortation. I'm just calling it a thought. A thought revealed by the Holy Spirit through an introspective and fully aware Christian. That means someone who's thinking about what they're saying. They're not lost in some delirious 
hallucination or out of their mind or anything like that. It's just, it feels, it would feel just like it does thoughtfully considering anything else. Thought revealed the Holy Spirit through an introspective and fully aware Christian for the purpose of guidance, direction, edification, encouragement, or consolation among the church. Thought revealed by the Holy Spirit through an introspective and fully aware Christian for the purpose of guidance, direction, edification, encouragement, or consolation among the church. I think both parties could get behind this definition, but they would debate exactly the implications of what that means, and they would debate the exact meaning of, of, of some of those words. I've, I've tried to keep it general. What Paul says here in this text, regardless of what you think of New Testament prophecy, which is certainly something I don't have time to tease out in our time together this morning, is that they are not to look down on or despise prophecy. They are not to dismiss it, likely because it had been abused, but neither are they to uncritically accept anyone claiming to bring them prophecy. They are not to uncritically accept. And so he tells them to test every prophecy. The translation here is a little bit misleading. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. It's like the proof text for a skeptic. It's like, see, I'm always supposed to test everything. The context clearly is testing the prophecies that they were just talking about. Okay? It's not be, the, not, not be the person who just is skeptic about everything in life. Test every prophecy. And just like um, not despising prophecies teased out what it means to not quench the Spirit, we're going to see how it, how, what does it look like to test everything. What it looks like is the next two verses. Hold fast, or the second part of 21, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. This is a sad translation in the ESV. In the ESV, it makes it look like verse 22 is a detached, random exhortation to moral living. Abstain from every form of evil. What does that have to do with prophecy? You know, are we, maybe it's just switching subjects totally, but notice it's a couplet with what comes before it. Good is paired with evil. What you also cannot see in the English is that the root word for hold fast and abstain in the Greek is the same. It's the same. Same root word, different prefix. It could be understood, even if it was awkwardly, as something like hold fast to the good, Hold yourselves away from every kind of evil that you identify in prophecy. That's the idea. The two are, are supposed to go together. It's not a general exhortation to moral living. It is, how do you not despise prophecies? Or excuse me, how do you not quench the spirit? You don't despise prophecies. But you need to test them. How do you test them? What, what does that look like teased out when it comes out in the wash of things? Hold fast to what is good and hold what is bad in them at arm's length. Don't have anything to do with them. They are both strong words that connote full-hearted embrace or full-hearted rejection of what is being said and what is going on. Do not blindly accept prophecy, but do not be a skeptic and have a pessimistic view towards it, he tells the Thessalonians. Paul then transitions to a blessing in his his final thoughts. He writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has no delusions, just to be clear, that the Thessalonians are going to achieve sinless perfection. But if you're looking carefully to the verse, the emphasis is at every part of them. They are completely sanctified, not in the sense that they are going to be perfect, but that there is no area, no sphere of their life that is a hidden pocket for sin or a hidden pocket for darkness, that their spirit, soul, and body be sanctified. Now, the dichotomists and the trichotomists fight furiously over this verse. What does that mean? The dichotomists is a view in theological anthropology. The body is composed of essentially uh, the body and, and, the, and the spirit or the soul, where trichotomists have no, we're composed of three elements here. And they're right here, your spirit and your soul and your body. So, so it's, you know, it's, it, and this is our proof text. Um, let, let me just say, without trying to adjudicate that dispute, there is some great material if you're interested in theological anthropology. It's unlikely here, in my judgment, in this moment, Paul is laying out a fine-tuned theology of personhood. Okay, in the very same way that I think it's unlikely that when Jesus said we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we're supposed to have said, "Oh yeah, we're composed of heart, mind, soul, and strength." That's like a these ontological categories that make us up. In other words, what he's saying is you're supposed to love the Lord God with everything that you have, right? I would suggest to you that that's what Paul's saying here, and that trying to really press in and stand up a really robust theology based on no, we are composed of of spirit, which is distinct from the soul, which is distinct from the body, probably pressing the text a little bit too hard. The point is, he wants all of who we are to be sanctified. And notice that the big picture has not changed. To be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our dominant theme, here we go, the dominant theme of 1 Thessalonians, once we get past the huge introduction, is the day of the Lord. It's the coming of Christ. It is walking in light of a bridegroom who is returning. And how do you wait for a bridegroom? You wait in purity. You wait in hope. You wait in thankfulness. Things that we'll come back to in some of the application. He prays for them to be sanctified in every part of their being and to be kept blameless because the day of the Lord is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And then he gives an incredible promise, an incredible promise. And even if you understand this theology, I want you to let it wash over your soul just one more time. I promise, I promise. It's just as exciting. Verse 24, he says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Notice that present tense of call. It's not called, calls. We heard it last time in Second and First Thessalonians chapter 2 where he talks about God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Here, it's not just that he called you, but we are reminded that God continues to call us and that he will surely do it. Do what? Do what exactly? Well, do exactly what he just said. What is that? To keep you blameless at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will surely do it. He will hold you fast. There won't be any dropouts because God is the guarantor of your salvation. And if you could mess it up, you would. 
and I would too. But he who calls you and is calling you, he's faithful and he's going to get it done. Because he's a God who gets it done. You're not. He is. I was running some errands with Callie the other day. and Every time we'd hop out of the car, she'd hold my hand. She was holding on to me. I could feel the, the grip pressure on my hand. And yet, unbeknownst to her, it was my grip pressure that was actually making sure she didn't fall. She was holding on, truly. But my holding on was the one that really was the guarantor that she wasn't going to fall. Are we to cling to Christ? Absolutely. But he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do. You and I don't show up in this verse. Did you notice that? You and I aren't in this little picture. In this snapshot. He who calls us is in this snapshot. He who will surely do it is in this picture. He will keep us blameless at his own coming. So be encouraged by that. When you feel broken down, when you feel half-rate, when you feel, oh my goodness, know that he who is faithful will surely do it. And he will keep you blameless. He will, in fact, hold you fast. Because he is the God who calls and who comes through. Verse 25, Paul says, pray for us. Pray for us. He's already mentioned his prayers for them three times in the letter. And he says, we need your prayers. I love this picture of humility here. If anyone would be like, Ugh, I don't need prayer, I'm an apostle. It'd be Paul. I don't need your prayers, you need my prayers. He says, pray for us. This is hard. This is hard work, I need prayer. And let me just say, if Paul needs prayer, so do you. So don't be that person who always feels like they're burdening someone to reach out to ask for prayer. You need prayer. Prayer is powerful and effective. Paul says, please, please pray for us. Join with us in prayer. And then we see the point that I made earlier. He tells them to greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Greeting people with a kiss in the first century there was common, but he adds holy to set it apart as distinctly Christian. Listen to what one scholar says here. I think he, I think he says it quite well. He says, the form which kissing takes varies considerably from culture to culture. It may involve the use of our hands, arms, mouths, cheeks, or noses. Or the custom of our country may be to stand back and bow without any bodily contact. Yet the apostles' instruction is clear that when Christians meet each other, they should greet each other, and that their verbal greeting should be made stronger, warmer, and personal by a culturally appropriate sign. And, and, and by the way, this is particularly the case in the event that there was some division um, caused by differ, differing estimations of the leadership that we talked about last time, where he was talking about honor your leaders, esteem them highly, be, have peace reign among you. This idea of being together and greeting one another with, with something like a, a uniquely Christian warmth, something like that, whatever it happens to look like culturally, where we find ourselves in any particular part of the world. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, this is one of those throwaway verses that people read over, but this is actually really significant. Why? Because already the Old Testament was being read in Christian churches. 
the Holy Scripture was already being read. And what Paul suggests is that his letter should be read right alongside it. And notice, unlike the prophecy, there's nothing in Paul's letter that says, make sure to test everything in this letter too. You know, make sure you hold fast to what's good in what I'm writing you and just hold away what's bad. That's not what he says. No, 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 no. Paul is not saying about, it, about his letter. He's, he's, maybe he's saying that about prophecies in the Thessalonian church. But what he is writing can be read right next to the Old Testament. So I just want you to let, feel the weight of this point. We had an Old Testament reading uh, uh, from Psalm 95. And imagine if someone stepped up next for our next reading and then read a letter that had exhortations and claims about God for our second reading of our time together this morning, right after the Old Testament reading and, and prayed. And that, and, that, and that was it. You probably think, whoa, that means like, almost seems like that would like as authoritative as, as scripture that they would position it like that and the answer is yes exactly that's exactly what paul understood his letter to be he understood that his letters were on par and in on par with the inspired old testament scripture and he says i want you to read this among the brothers and so people had better listen and he closes with the theme that saturates his ministry, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What do we make of these parting words to a fledgling church? I've picked out two things to discuss a little bit. The first is discerning words from the Lord. It allows me to say a little bit more about prophecy or how to at least interact with it. <clears throat> I want to give some practical counsel for thinking well about the God told me kind of language. Whether or not a person is explicitly claiming prophecy, whether it is or isn't some kind of prophecy at the end of the day, according to your view, just more generally, what do we make of an exhortation or a revelation that someone brings to us, either with claimed infallibility or simply a sense of spiritual initiative? provide some kind of meaningful insight into your life. I want to say three, three things about that. The first is this. Don't nitpick people's language. Don't let that be the very first thing that you go to. Um, most people who come to you and say, God told me this, uh, either for themselves or to you, they aren't claiming, most of them, are in, in kind of circles that you're going to be interacting with and certainly the ones I interact with, they aren't claiming authoritative divine revelation, folks. They're just not. They're not claiming that they're a prophet. They're not claiming that the, what they're about to say is on par with the Bible. They, they likely don't even have a teased-out understanding of New Testament prophecy. So you don't always have to be the theological policeman, policewoman type, okay? Someone says, God told me this and that. Just listen to what they say before you get all bent out of shape about how they introduced what they're going to say. Okay, number two, test everything for goodness and truth. Test everything for goodness and truth. This is why I don't, and some of my New Testament professors at seminary be so ashamed of me for saying this, but this is why I don't care quite as much practically about the prophecy debate. Because if person one tells me that they are going to give me some counsel 
they're purporting to give me counsel or encouragement. And then person two says that they are going to prophesy to me. I'm going to evaluate what both of them say in the exact same way. In the exact same way. Someone comes to me and said, hey, God told me to tell you this and that you should do this. And someone says, hey, you know what I was thinking? This would probably be the best course of action for you. You know how I'm going to evaluate those things for the most part? The exact same way. The exact same way. Now, how do I test these things? How do I test these things? I'm going to give you five very quick ways Scripture seems to lay out to test these words from the Lord. The first is to compare it with Scripture. Scripture is supreme. It is the final authoritative inerrant deposit revealing Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 1, and there is no more of that kind of revelation. So everything that is brought to me must line up with the text of Scripture. That's number one in terms of testing things. Number two, does this person confess Jesus Christ? Does this person confess Jesus Christ? 1 John 4, we read, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Is the person who is bringing me this word, do they clearly cling to Christ themselves? Do they clearly cling to Christ themselves? If they don't, it would be hard for me to believe that they're interested in my own soul They're not if they don't seem to be uh, totally interested in theirs. Do they cling to Christ? Number three, what is the conduct of this person who is giving me this word? Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What does this person's life look like? Everyone has been in a friend group where someone whose life is totally falling apart, or it's just maybe it's not. Maybe that's a over. Maybe that's extreme. But there's a lot. They are not. Um, they're having a rough go. Let's put it that way. And the rough go doesn't seem to be ending. Uh, in terms of not walking with the Lord, to be clear, and yet they delight in giving counsel. They delight in being the relational advisor. They delight in you sharing. Uh, your secrets with them. Of course, they don't ever do the same for you. But the point is, when they come to you and say, here authoritatively, this is what you should do, I'm going to look at the conduct of this person and say, I don't really know how highly I'm going to esteem your counsel because I don't want my life to look like yours if I'm totally honest. This is not a faith that I want to imitate. Okay? Conduct of the person. You will recognize them by their fruits. Four, does this encourage, build up, edify, or does it lead to sin, tear down, and oppose wisdom? Does this edify or does this encourage gossip? Am I being encouraged? Or am I being torn down? Am I being pointed towards holiness? Or am I being pointed towards a path of sin or perhaps folly that may lead to sin, foolishness? Number four. And finally, fifth, if something is, if what's proclaimed to me is a directive that I should do something, do wise counselors vouch for its wisdom. Someone says, you should do this. In a multitude of counselors, there is safety. If I go talk with other people and said, hey, so-and-so said that I should do this, what do y'all think about that? If, you're, if you have a group of wise counselors, they're all like, no. 
Absolutely not. That is so foolish. Probably not a word from the Lord. Probably not something that you should be about. Five ways, I think, biblically to test claims of the word of the Lord or something good is spiritually initiated. Okay, so point one, don't nitpick. Point two, test everything. But point three, be open to the dynamic work of the Spirit as the Spirit still works in the church. Do not be that person who is either so theologically gun-shy or is so uh, traumatized by someone declaring the word of the Lord and it just being smoke that you are this person who, at Thessalonica who says, I dismiss everything like that. Because then you know what happens is you become your own little little king sitting on your own throne where the Spirit, you, you, you section yourself off from the Spirit working in the church. And anything, the only thing that has weight is what you determine, it has, you determine uh, has weight in the, in the counsel of your own thinking. You become sovereign over everything in that sense. You take everything, everyone says with a grain of salt. Nothing has any weight until you confer it. You esteem it highly. And essentially what you end up doing is just tr- is trusting in your own wisdom. What I'm saying, if you do that, you're going to end up quenching the spirit. You're going to end up quenching the spirit because of an overreaction to something that you have seen abuse. So be open to the dynamic work of the spirit as you compare it to the static, authoritative, inerrant work of the spirit here. Okay. Finally, what does it look like to live in light of the day of the Lord? This is really more of a summary of the whole book. Uh, or, or, or I guess it could be I guess it could be said that way. The first is you live in holiness. Remember, we want to live as creatures of the daytime. How do you wait for a bridegroom? I gave the example a couple of months ago about the woman whose husband went off uh, to overseas to the military. She is unfaithful while he is over there, and when he comes back, she says, "I've been waiting for you. Oh, I've been waiting for you." It's kind of a half-hearted. Uh, Kind of hard to believe exactly she was waiting, right? What does waiting for the bridegroom mean? It means living faithful to the bridegroom while we wait. Holiness. Personal holiness. Find virtuous, excellent people and imitate their faith. Find them. Seek them out. Walk in the light. Make every effort, Second Peter 1, to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, brotherly love, all of the rest of it. We want to live in holiness. That's how you can practically wait well for the day of the Lord. Number two, hope. We don't live in despair. We don't get caught in all or nothing thinking as Christians because all or nothing thinking, generally speaking, does not describe our life circumstances. We don't caught, get caught in believing that our struggles are forever. Anyone in here having a tough time? Okay, great. You don't even have to raise your hands. I know. I know, but guess what? Hope says this won't last forever. Not just eternally, in the vast majority of cases, though not all, there's hope here in the land of the living that God can work and God can redeem and God can change things. So we're not a, we don't give in to unbridled pessimism. We don't become skeptical. We don't consign ourselves to the worst impossible interpretation of everything that happens. We live people who are, who are hopeful. Hopeful. Not groundlessly optimistic, But people who have hope because we have promises that God is guarantor on, promises to bless, promises to redeem, promises to do good. And so we live as people who are hopeful. And then finally, encouragement. I've mentioned this a couple times before. 
You've never asked someone how they're doing and they've said, man, I've just been too encouraged lately. I mean, everything is going well, but I've just been too encouraged. You never heard anyone say that. And maybe there's something there. Paul, multiple times in this letter, essentially says to encourage one another. In fact, explicitly in verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. Paul says to encourage one another with the truths of the gospel and the hope of the day of the Lord. So, so, so let's take him to heart. How can you be, this is just such a simple question, how can you be a better encourager? What I have found is that people just don't try because they feel like, well, that doesn't fit my personality. It feels odd to me to encourage people. Like, okay, well, that's, that's a lame excuse. you got to be kidding me. Encouraging people doesn't take talent. Like, it doesn't take giftedness. You can encourage people. Be an encourage, encourage your spouse. Encourage your children. Encourage your friends. Whoever it, is, whoever it is, encourage them with these things. And you can encourage them with the truths laid out in the gospel. Listen, you don't always have to be the person who has some original, amazing insight like a biblical counselor. Some people think, if I don't have some original insight, if I don't have something profound in my own judgment to say, well, I'm just not going to say anything. They probably already know that. But guess what? Paul stirs them up by way of reminder to things he already said in it, while he was teaching there. He's telling them again, you have no reason for anyone to remind you of these things. And then what does he go on and do? He reminds them of them. So you don't have to be someone who's always coming up with profound insights or original material to be an encourager. Let the same truths wash over people's souls. Sometimes the same things need to wash over our souls in fresh ways. And you can do it. You can do it. How can we be a, a, a church that is more encouraging than we already are as we pray together, as we sing together, and we give thanks together as we rejoice together? Let's pray. God, we want to be a people who honor you with our lives, with our hearts, with our lips. Would you help us be a discerning people that we would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every claim of authority, but that we would press into your word, allow it to master us. Help us be sober-minded and God, help us not to lose sight that we live in light of the end. We live in light of this day of the Lord. And I pray that that reality would not just spawn speculation about millennial views or something like that, but it would provide concrete, tangible hope that we would organize and even have as a framework in our mind the day of the Lord as a rubric under which to live and, and, and a motive for walking in holiness for being encouraging, and for having hope. We know that we cannot do these things apart from your will and your grace, and so we ask for it. We ask so boldly in Jesus' name.